Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started. I'm, we're about two minutes early, but uh, this is gonna, I'm going to try to get done with this in one lesson, and this is going to be a lot. So uh, let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll, get, we'll begin. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. You are a great, wonderful, loving God, and uh, we are here uh, with the goal to, to exalt your name, to lift you up, to bring you worship. And we pray that everything that is done in the teaching and preaching and singing and giving in the fellowship, that that is done. We love you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are, we've been going through this study, uh, part number two in our lessons, uh, on men of a great God, biographies from church history, and this is the Reformers. This year we're covering the Reformers. We covered, the first of all, we covered John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was in the 1300s. And Wycliffe was in England. And Wycliffe uh, started to speak out, getting into the Bible, started to speak out against the priesthood and then the monkery and then all of these things and then against the Pope and then against transubstantiation. And the more he dug in the Scriptures, the more that he saw things wrong with the church. And then he decided to... What the people needed was not more of his teaching per se, but they needed the Bible that they could understand so they could see it for themselves. So he said, let's translate the Bible into English. And that did not go over well. Well, Wycliffe dies. Of course, after he dies, they try to condemn him as a heretic. Uh, about 50, 60 years later, they have his, bo his bones dug up and burned. And then Wycliffe directly impacts... A guy in Prague, or in Czech, Czech uh, what is today the modern Czech Republic, John Huss. And John Huss, from 1369 to 1415, really becomes a firebrand. He becomes a fiery preacher in that area. And because he's more located in continental Europe, England was separated. It was like an island, right? This is over here in Europe. He's close even to Rome. He's causing a stir. And, uh, in fact, it gets to where all of Prague is ready to be done with the Pope. And there's so many other problems. To have the, they have the Council of Constance that they call in Germany. They bring Huss there. Huss goes with the idea that he's going to be able to be heard out. And they arrest him. And for eight months, he sits in prison, back and forth, gets really sick. And then finally, they, they take him and they condemn him as a heretic and then... They, they actually burn him at the stake for Wycliffeism, and he dies. Where we're going to go next is a hundred years later. We're going to jump forward a hundred years, and we're going to talk about a guy. And this is this is I I I've read so much more on this person than I have so far with any of the character studies that I've done. There's so much about this man. He's an exciting figure to study about. He is really entertaining. Uh, his personality, and he is probably one of the most influential characters, not just in history, but also the church. The Protestant Reformation stands as the most far-reaching, world-changing display of God's grace since the birth and early expansion of the church. Philip Schaff says this, It marks the end of the Middle Ages and beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. 
A new day was dawning. Feudal states were giving way to nation states. Exploration was expanding. Christopher Columbus discovered the New World in 1492. Trade routes were opening. Johann Gutenberg's invention of the printing press in 1454 had vastly improved the dissemination of ideas. Now that's going to be very key to the Protestant Reformation, the invention of the printing press. Why did not the Reformation just kick off with Wycliffe? Why did it not kick off with Huss? They certainly both had very good followings, and a lot of the citizenry agreed with them. So why was it not them but Luther that it started with? And I think the key, number one to that, is God. But number two, the human factor in that, is the printing press. It's the printing press. Because in order to disseminate Luther or or Wycliffe or Huss's ideas, they had to be copied, hand-copied. It moved very slowly. And then you didn't have a whole lot of people that could really read. The printing press comes along. And now things can be copied, not like we have today, like we run back there, but they can be uh, reprinted and disseminated much quicker than hand copying. And then that gets people excited. They want to learn to read, and things move forward. And we're going to see that as we get into Luther's life. What factors led to the Protestant Reformation? Where was the Reformation born? How did this powerful movement come about? Where did it spread? Who were the key leaders? Who stoked its flames? What biblical truths were unleashed on the world at this time? To to begin to answer these questions, we must focus in on those giants of the faith who led the Reformation. Of course, the battle cry today of the Reformation is what's called the five solas. How many of you have ever heard of the five solas? Five solas is the message of the Reformers It became encapsulated in five slogans known as the solas of the Reformation. The first one is sola scriptura, meaning, these are all Latin, meaning scripture alone. Why was that such a big deal? Because the church taught that the Bible came about because of the church. So therefore, the main authority rested in the church. Who was the authority over the church? The Pope. So therefore, the authority rested with the Pope. But the Reformers rested on this, that the authority didn't come from the church or the Pope, even though they did think that the church had garnered authority. But the central, sole, major authority came from the Bible, from the Scriptures, because they believed it was God's Word to man. Sola Scriptura. The next one was Sola Christus, Christ alone. Salvation comes through Christ alone. The next one was sola gratia, grace alone. It's all by God's grace, nothing that you can do for yourself. Because that's what this Dark Ages was about, how the church had changed its gospel, changed its doctrine, and the gospel was lost during this time for the most part, and people were having to work their way to salvation. The whole idea of indulgences was about this. You know, pay your way. No, it's by grace alone, not what's in your bank account. And then sola fide, faith alone. And then sola dea gloria. Why was all this for? The glory of God alone. Those are considered, those are called the five solas of the Reformation. And we're going to look at several different men from different countries who did different things and had different impacts for this movement to where we got to today 
who, mind you, all had different sin problems. But these five markers is where they all stood. Now, some of you are going to be disgusted by some of the men that we talk about. Some of you are going to be encouraged. Some of you are going to think, how can we look to a guy like that knowing that he did this? My grandpa's funeral several years ago, uh, my uncle told a story about my grandpa. My grandpa had this big shed, this big shop, and uh, he was a construction worker. He worked for an electric company for years until they shut the, until he retired. He was a worker. Uh, I remember as a kid just seeing him as, as, as that view of your grandpa on a roof, roof and shingles. I mean, he had to be almost 70 years old. Uh, he, was, he was about my height. But uh, he, he was, I have more of a, a, a belly than he was skinny as a rail. Not skinny as a rail, but he was, he was, he was, he was fit. And uh, he had a quick wit. He was, he was, he was a humorous guy. He always, we always loved when him and my grandma sat down together. and He'd poke at her, just get push her buttons on purpose, and then she'd get mad and leave the room. He'd just sit there and cackle. My uncle told this story that whenever he was around the shop, they'd say, Dad, we need something over here. We need something. Need a nail. And instead of actually getting a nail, he would look on the floor to see if he could find an old used nail. And he'd grab something that was bent or taken out of a board, and he'd say, Here, use this. And they said, No, a real nail. And he'd say, Oh, it'll work. And he would hit that thing. He would not let a nail go to waste. And he used that illustration to talk about how God uses a lot of bent and old nails. And that's the thing that I think we can take out of the study of these men. Even though we may be disgusted with some of the things they do, understand that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. So, who were these reformers? Uh, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, Hugh Latimer, Martin Bucer. We're not going to cover Martin Bucer, but he was one of them. He was very close to Luther. Uh, William Tyndale, Philip Melanchthon, we also are not going to cover him, but he was probably Luther's best friend, uh, John Rogers, Heinrich Bollinger, and John Calvin. So let's get into Martin Luther. Who is Martin Luther? Martin Luther, Luther was a giant of history. Some believe he was the most significant European figure of the second millennium. He was the undisputed leader of the German Reformation. Get this, more books have been written about him than any other man of history except Jesus Christ. That's saying something. That also tells you what kind of impact his life had on civilization. His early life. Luther came from hardworking stock. He was born in the little town of Eisleben, Germany, on November 10th, 1483. His father Hans was a copper miner. But he didn't stay as a copper miner. His father was sort of an entrepreneur mind, if you could think of it that way. And he got in. As soon as he got some money, he bought a mine. And then he bought some other mines. And then he, he started getting into other business ventures. And he wanted the best for his son. So he thought, what would be best for my son's career to go into? So he told Martin he wanted him to become a lawyer. They'd make great money. And that's what he wanted Martin to do. So... Uh, he, uh, he went to the University of Erfurt. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1502 and then a Master's of Arts degree in 1505. 
So young Martin was becoming what his father wanted him to be, a lawyer. He was on his way home from a break from school in July of 1505. On his way home, a thunderstorm started happening. Now, again, remember the times. We don't have, they don't have the same understanding of meteorology that they did back, like back then that we do today. So whenever a thunderstorm comes, they don't know any better to take shelter. So Martin's walking down the, uh, a field through a farm pasture, and as he comes, lightning strikes close to him, close enough, it scared him to death. He falls back, screams out, Help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk! Well, St. Anne was the patron saint of miners. And so he was scared to death. He waited there for a little bit. He got up, he went home, and that's what he told his parents. He's going to become a monk. Two weeks later... He had already withdrawn from school. Two weeks later, he shows up at the door of an Augustinian monkery, knocks on the door, and he becomes a monk. Was this when Martin Luther got saved? No. He's still an unconverted man. Okay? He's still a lost sinner. Um, Life as a monk. In the monastery, Luther was driven to find acceptance with God through his works. He wrote, this is a quote from Martin Luther, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What else I did seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life. I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded Him only as a severe and terrible judge portrayed as seated on a rainbow." He, he wrote at one point that he had come to the point where he hated God because Luther became so acutely aware of his sinfulness that he was going to confession for hours at a time. His confessor, uh, that was sort of like his mentor at the time, was uh, uh, Stoppitz, Johann Stoppitz. And Stoppitz got aggravated at him because he would spend sometimes four to five hours in the confessing booth. And he's like, I've got other things to do to hear about your little confessions about sins you committed when you were three. Okay, stop it, Luther. Every time you remember something as a kid, you've got to come confess it. It was driving Stoppitz nuts. And he said, will you go and do something that's actually big? <laughs> and, but Luther felt this condemnation, this guilt of sin because he was so consumed with trying to find a peace God. And it, it was such a burden on him. One of the problems with that was because of the Latin scriptures at the time, the Latin Vulgate. It changed the word metanoia, metanoia, repentance. In our English scriptures, when we see the word repent, it comes from a Greek word metanoia, which means change of mind or changing oneself. Well, in the Latin Vulgate, that Greek word is translated, I can't say the Latin for you, but it means do penance. Now, that's a very different thing, right? Because do penance is do something. So where the Bible actually is telling somebody to repent, to receive, or when Jesus was saying repent for the kingdom of heaven, do this, they're thinking they have to do something to gain favor with God. And whatever Luther did was never enough because the guilt and condemnation never left him. It drove him nuts. In 1507, Luther was adorned to, uh, ordained to the priesthood. He became a priest. Uh, in 1510... Uh, R.C. Sproul talks about how they, they finally had gotten sick and tired of this guy, Luther. And so they thought, we just need to send him away. He's wound a little too tight. Let's send him to Rome. It'll do him some good. 
He'll, he'll, he'll get out of our hair and we can get some things done. And Luther can go and he can see the priest, he can see the Pope, and I think it'll, it'll do good for him. Had the opposite effect. Luther goes there. And on his visit to Rome, he is appalled at the lives of the priests and the cardinals. The immorality that is just blatant in your face by these men. Then Luther comes to there in Rome, and it's still there today. It's said that during one of the crusades, the crusaders went to Jerusalem and they found the steps in Pilate's hall where Jesus was walked up and then presented for the crowd and then condemned and came back down. The actual steps that Jesus walked on. So the crusaders dismantled the steps and took them back to Rome and they put it there in Rome at the Vatican. And so the, the, set, the tradition or the superstition was that if you crawled up those steps on your knees, kissing the steps and reciting the Lord's Prayer, when you got to the top of them, certain amount of years of purgatory would come off of your life. So, hey, even today, to this day, if you go there, there are still people doing that. Luther talked about people whose knees were bloody because they kept doing it over and over again. So Luther went and did it. He walked up the steps with his knees, kissed the steps, recited the Lord's Prayer, got to the top, and his disillusionment just hit him like a ton of brick. Turned around, looked down the steps, and it said that he, he said this verbally, out loud. Who knows if this is even true? That was the start, really, of Luther's disillusionment with the church. Luther received his Doctor of Theology degree from the University of Wittenberg in 1512 and was named Professor of Bible there. Uh, he becomes this professorship in the, in the University of Wittenberg until the day of his death. So he was never really a pastor, although we, we're going to see that he was preaching, not just preaching to students and preaching to people during the week, but he was preaching at the church. They wanted The local pastor there let Luther have the pulpit because everybody wanted to hear Luther. Now, that's later on. But he was really a, a, a university professor, a seminary professor. Uh, he lectured while on... And now, all of this is before he's saved. He's still not converted yet. He lectured first on the Psalms, then Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. But the more Luther studied, the more perplexed he became. One question consumed him. How is a sinful man made right before a holy God? Remember when Brother Steve did his study on Romans? That was the title of his study. How sinful man can receive the righteousness of God? This was Luther's great question. Where's the book to find that at? Romans. Romans gives you the answer. Well, then comes, of course, controversy. In 1517, a Dominican, a Dominican itinerant named John or Johann Tetzel began to sell indulgences, indulgences near Wittenberg with the offer of the forgiveness of sins. Now, we've talked about indulgences before, right? Indulgences where they would come and offer you a piece of paper, you'd pay for that, and that would either get your loved one uh, reduced sentence in purgatory or even yourself, okay? And so the Pope wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica. So they needed money. So he sent these guys out to start doing this, and Tetzel was the best. He was good. He was, he was the best used car salesman you ever met. He had it down to it. He had the emotion working. He got people excited. He knew exactly the stories to tell to get them going. And he had the slogan. His famous line was, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, 
the soul from purgatory springs. And he comes near Wittenberg and Luther starts hearing about this and it angers him because some of his people are being bought into this. And Luther knows this is, this is hogwash. This is nothing. This horrible abuse enraged Luther. He determined that there must be a public debate on the matter. So, on October 31st, 1517, he nailed a list of 95 theses statements regarding indulgences to the front door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Now, before we think, oh, we must understand first that this was not that kind of, of an act. Okay? Nailing something on the castle door was like posting something on a bulletin board. It was like making an announcement. Well, what Luther was asking for was not reforming the church. We need to understand that. He was not saying, all right, we need to separate from the church. We need to reform this. We need to kick the Pope out. It's not what he was doing at all. He didn't want that at this point. He's still unsaved. What he said was, this is what he was doing by nailing these 95 theses. What he was doing was this. I don't agree with these indulgences. Let's have a discussion about it. And he nailed 95 of these statements that he came up with for his position, and he nailed them to the castle door. So why was this the marker of the Protestant Reformation? You read any Christian history book or any type of thing like that, and they say this was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, a couple of years ago, uh, October 31st, 2017, was the celebration of the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. Why is that the marker? It goes back to what I started with, the printing press. See, Luther's students found this, and they read it, and they thought, they didn't, it wasn't what Luther was thinking when he wrote this. They thought, oh my goodness. So they took it, and they rushed it to a printing, they copied, it, he wrote it in Latin. So they copied it in German, and then they rushed it to the printing press, and it started going all over Germany, and it caught like wildfire. Let me read you just, uh, uh, I know time's going to go fast, but let me just read you two of these statements. I have six or seven here. Number one was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, in Matthew four seventeen, He willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. Um, Theses number 32, those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Now this, it gets back to Pope Leo X, the Pope. The Pope reads it and the Pope's first reaction is, oh, it's just the ramblings of a drunken priest. He didn't take it seriously. What he didn't realize is how much this was spreading and how big of a deal this was becoming to the common people. Luther became an overnight hero. With that, the Reformation was essentially born. Luther's conversion. It was about a year and a half. Luther writes himself, there's debate among historians when he was actually converted. Luther himself writes about his tower experience. You know what? I tend to go with the man himself. They, some think that Luther was confused about the time because he wrote about this later in his life. But... If I asked you when you were saved, I think that you, most of you could probably say, I remember. I remember the time. And you can give your testimony. I, I, I trust Luther. It, it came almost two years after the nailing of the 95 Theses, and he was still struggling with this idea of how man can be right with God, and he comes to Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And Luther woke up. The Holy Spirit ignited his heart, 
Faith started. He believed and it says, oh, so what is it going to tell me? As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And it happened for Luther. God opened his heart. God opened his mind. The blindness came away and he realized it was by faith. And he was converted. I had a long thing that I was going to read you about his testimony, but again, this is, we, we, we could spend so much time on Luther. Attacking papal authority. Justification by faith alone clashed with Rome's teaching of justification by faith and works. Thus the Pope denounced Luther for preaching dangerous doctrines and summoned him to Rome. When Luther refused, he was called to Leipzig in 1519 for a public debate with Johann Eck, a leading Catholic theologian. Now here's what happens at debate with Eck. Luther goes and defends scriptures, and he defends his position with the scriptures. Eck keeps battering him and saying, just admit it, you agree with the heretic John Huss. And so finally, Luther's like, okay, okay. If Huss believed this, and he did, then I agree with Huss. Eck says, says, I got it. Debate is over, and Eck goes back to Rome with peacock feathers thinking, this is over. So Rome thinks, all right, it's done. Because he thinks he won because he got Luther to admit that he agreed with the burnt heretic Huss. But the people heard Luther, and they heard his defense, and they got behind Luther. And so then Rome quickly finds out, Johannek didn't win the debate. This isn't going away. We got a problem on our hands because now it's really spreading. In the summer of 1520, the Pope issued a bull. A document began by saying, the document began by saying, Arise, O Lord, and judge your cause. A wild boar has invaded your vineyard. That's what he called Luther. He gave him 60 days to recant. This was a papal bull. This is a direct order from the Pope. Do this or you're excommunicated. Now remember what we talked about excommunication to them. If you were excommunicated, that meant you were officially going to hell. Luther waits 60 days. At the 60th day, he gathers his students, goes to the middle of the town, starts a bonfire, reads the papal bull to the crowd, and then lights it on fire. Basically, this is what he was saying. You're going to try to decree me to hell? Your papal bull can go to hell. That's what he was saying. Luther was an interesting character. After he got saved, he really becomes a very bold guy. And it's, it's, it's really fun to read stories about him. Um, then they have the diet of worms. The diet of worms. Diet is not food diet. It was, it was, a, it was a meeting. Okay? In 1521, the young Holy Roman Emperor Charles V summoned Luther to appear at the diet of worms in Worms, Germany in order to officially recant. Now remember, have we seen this, sto- this story before? Have we seen this scenario before? It happened with Huss, right? What happened when Huss got there? He's arrested, eventually burned at the stake. Luther knows about Huss. Many of Luther's followers know about Huss. So there is a bit of a trepidation in the air. Luther was asked if he would retract his teachings of the books. Luther thought he was going to be given the opportunity in front of the Pope and in front of the Holy Roman Emperor to defend his scriptures, and he believed that he could convince them with given a chance. However... They didn't give him that chance. When he got there, they had all of his books thus far that he had written on a table. 
he gets there and they look at him and they say, are these your books? And he looks at him and he says, well, yeah. They say, recant. Do you recant what's in your books? And he was like a little thrown off. What? He was ready to go into like a, a discussion, a debate even. And they just says, do you recant what's in your books? And he says, uh, again, I don't know what's in his mind. But for me personally, I sort of think he's thinking, okay, is this my Huss moment? If I say, no, I don't recant, they're going to rush me right out and burn me. Maybe he was thinking he was just thrown off guard. Some historians have differing opinions. Of course, we can't get into his mind. He looks at him and asks if he could have 24 hours to think it over. He wanted the 24 hours to think of a response. So they let him go to a room, and 24 hours is given to him. He prays. He comes back the next day. Is this your books? Do you recant of what's in them? He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, and I will not, recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Charles V was livid. He condemned Luther as a heretic and placed a hefty price on his head. Luther left the, the, the diet building, the, the, the meeting building. He left there that night, probably expecting that he was going to be arrested and then burned. Before he could, though, Luther's friends threw a hood over his face, probably scared the man to death, threw him in the back of a carriage and took him to Vortburg Castle. They saved him because they were thinking the same thing. And it probably would have happened had they not done that. He probably would have been a dead man. But they took him and he stayed in exile at Vortburg. Uh, he stayed there for eight months. Luther, while there in isolation and in, in, in hiding at Vortburg Castle, decided to translate the Bible into German. Because at this time it's 1521. Another major thing happened in 1516. A guy by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, a Roman Catholic priest, decided to collate some, some manuscripts that he had and translate for the first time, give a translation of the Bible in Greek. All they had was the Latin Vulgate and they had various manuscripts that maybe they could get a hold of, but putting them all together and one translation. So Erasmus finished that work in 1516. When he gets to Vortburg Castle, he gets his hands on one and he decides to use it to translate the Bible into German. Uh, Luther began his translation of the Bible into German. After that, Luther is able to make it back to Wittenberg. The Rome, Rome realizes that they can't kill the guy, so they're trying to do whatever they can to uh, discredit him. He goes back to Wittenberg, goes back to teaching, and goes back to preaching. Walter von Lohenwich, I don't know if that's, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but it's a German guy who wrote a biography on Martin Luther, said this, Luther was one of the greatest preachers in the history of Christendom. Between 1510 and 1546, Luther preached approximately 3,000 sermons. Frequently, 
He preached several times a week, often two or more times a day. Just to give you a little bit of perspective on how many 3,000 sermons is, okay? And just the short time that we have been in this building, uh, I've been recording our sermons. Brother Steve, I have recorded back there on the computer uh, just a little over 500. I have about 250, okay? Uh, John MacArthur has his entire sermon library online. He's been preaching for 50 years, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, for 50 years. His entire sermon library comes to be about 2,500 sermons. Luther preached 3,000 sermons in like 25 years. The man preached. He was a preaching machine. So, he was a very... I had a long paragraph, too, about how busy Luther was. It greatly convicted me, but again... We don't have time to go in there. Let's talk about a little bit about Luther's family. Uh, an interesting thing happened as he started preaching about the different things of the church. He had to write a whole different ecclesiology. Because breaking off of the Roman Catholic Church at this time is where Luther's mindset was. And then people were saying, well, how do we do this and how do we do that? He was changing up the Lord's Supper. He was changing up this. And then Luther read in First Timothy about how forbidding marriage was product of false teaching, and then read about how the pastor is supposed to be husband of one wife. So obviously, priests should marry. So he starts teaching his students, they should get her wife. Well, nuns in Germany leave convents and they go to Luther. There's a story he wrote about how six nuns came to him one day and said, will you find us a husband? And he said, gladly. So he finds a husband for every one of them but one. He couldn't satisfy her. None of the men from his students, none of his students would be, would, was good enough for her. And he finally got frustrated, or frustrated with her and decided to marry her himself. Her name was Katerina von Bora, and that was her plan all along. She went there with the other girls, determined, I'm going to marry Martin. Yeah, <laughs> he was about 20 years older than her. He did not want to marry her. But she wanted to marry him. But it wasn't long after that that he fell madly in love with her. He wrote this about this is actually pretty funny. He wrote this. Um, uh, Luther states that when he married, he married to upset the Pope and to make angels laugh and the devils weep. <laughs> he was an interesting man. Of course, he writes in his letters. We have let many of his... I have the collected works, uh, digital, in my uh, e-library, the collected works of Martin Luther. Many of his letters he wrote, him and his wife wrote letters to each other all the time. Uh, and uh, he, he, he called her affectionately his beloved Katie. He also called her many times his rib. Sort of a, a jest, you know, you're, you're, the, you're my rib. You know, Adam's rib that was taken out. Um, he loved Katie, loved her thoroughly. Uh, there was one story that Luther was, was prone, to, he, and we're going to talk a little bit about his health, but he was also prone to fits of melancholy and depression, and he got down. You know, it's said that people that uh, have their very bombastic personalities have high highs, and they have low lows. And Luther was that kind of person. And one day when he was having one of those fits of depression, he was down in his study, and Katie uh, came down dressed in black. Well, that was funeral attire. He looked at her and said, Woman, who died? She said, Didn't you hear? God died. He said, Woman, you're mad. God did not die. She said, Then what's got you so down? And she said, he said, 
He writes in his letter, it was just what I needed to get me out of my stupor. She was surely a match fit for Martin Luther. Uh, they had six children. Their children were Johann, Elizabeth, Magdalena, Martin, Paul, and Margaret. Elizabeth died at eight months old. But Luther kept on going under the pain. There's many stories about how it, this really affected him. And he, when, he's, when he wasn't preaching or traveling to a, a debate or conference, he was by her bedside while she was sick. Unless we think Luther neglected the children, consider that on Sunday afternoons, often after preaching twice, Luther led the household devotions, which were virtually another worship service for an hour, including guests as well as the children. He, uh, he took an old um, monkery building. Uh, of course, the Catholic monks left Germany because Germany was almost completely reformed after a few years. And they took it over. Him and Katerina took it over, and they turned it into their house. And Luther always had guests. If he met somebody on the road that enjoyed his preaching or he had a student, come over to the house. And they had many rooms there, so it was almost like a hotel. And Katie kept up with it. She was a very busy lady. She was, she was the quintessential Proverbs 31 woman because she didn't even stay there. She didn't just keep house and cook meals. She also went out and bought land, did, took care of business adventures, made money for the household to keep up with all the things. She was quite a woman. And... Uh, and so they had big meals and everything, and, and Luther would have conversations with students or visiting preachers or guests. And there, were some, there was one guy that would, there, he was a student of Luther, he would transcribe everything Luther said while he had a chicken bone in his mouth. <laughs> and, and it became known today as table talk. And so if you ever look up Luther's collected works, you'll find table talk. These are all conversations he had at dinner. Uh, Luther was quite a man. The end of Luther's life. Students came from all over Europe to learn from this great reformer. William Tyndale was one of them. We're going to talk about William Tyndale. He was one of Luther's students. Till the end of his life, Luther maintained a heavy workload of lecturing, preaching, teaching, writing, and debating. He soon became subject to illness in 1537. He became so ill that his friends feared he would die. In 1541, he again became seriously ill. And this time, he himself thought he would pass from this world. He recovered yet again, but he was plagued by various ailments throughout his final 14 years. One interesting story that I thought was just fascinating, again, tells about how kind of man he was. The Black Plague came through Germany, and uh, many people were getting out of there. And Luther writes in one of his letters uh, the struggle that he had, should I go or should I stay? And he talked to his wife. They decided to stay. And during that time, one of his sons got sick. They thought he was going to die. He, he pulled through. But they turned their home into a hospital and he ministered to all of those that were sick and dying of the plague. He took a chance because him and his whole family could have died from that. Um, among other illnesses, he suffered from gallstones and even lost sight in one eye. In early 1546, Luther traveled to Eisleben, the place of his birth. He preached there and then traveled on to Mansfield. Two brothers the Counts of Mansfield had asked him to arbitrate a family difference. Luther had the great satisfaction of seeing the two reconciled. That same evening, Luther fell ill. As the night passed, Luther's three sons, Jonas, Martin, and Paul, and some friends watched by his side. They pressed him, quote, Reverend, Father, do you stand by Christ in the doctrine you have preached? The Reformer gave a distinct yes in reply. He died in the early hours of February 18, 1546, within sight of the font of the 
place where he was baptized as an infant. Luther was buried in front of the pulpit in the Castle Church of Wittenberg. You know, I always say uh, history may record the deeds of a great man or even somebody's reputation may seem that there's something else. But I want to know what his wife thought about him. I want to know what his kids thought about him. The true measure of a great man are those that knew him best and what they say. And we can look at Luther. He had his good qualities and he had his bad qualities. But what did his wife think of him? Catherine wrote concerning his lasting influence and monumental impact upon Christendom, quote, For who would not be sad and afflicted at the loss of such a precious man as my dear Lord was? He did great things, not just for a city or a single land, but for the whole world. When your wife could say that about your ministry after you're gone, to me, that's the test of greatness. Luther's writings. Let me cover this really quick. We're almost out of time. Luther was one of the most prolific writers of all time. He wrote, get this, 544 works that eventually were bound in a 54 thick volumes in English. His most important titles would include, first of all, The Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will is interesting. In 1524, Desiderius of Rasmus of Rotterdam, the great humanist scholar, wrote a book titled The Diatribe on the Freedom of the Will opposing Luther's denial of man's free will. Luther answered the following year with the bondage of the will. What's interesting is is Erasmus wrote this, and time went by and time went by, and people started to wonder if Luther was going to respond. Finally, Luther responded, wrote the bondage of the will, and put it in circulation. When people read it, Luther wrote this. You may have been wondering what took me so long to respond. He said, I waited and waited to see if you would actually write something of worth. That's the way Luther was. He, he was very, very cruel to those that disagreed with him. Okay? And, and his, his, like, if you were not on his side, in fact, we're going to talk next week about a guy named Oryx Wingley, another reformer. They disagreed on, on the Lord's Supper, and Luther was very mean to Zwingli. Luther had his faults. He had his sin problems, just like every one of us do, and the other men that we're going to follow. Um, Luther wrote... To, to Erasmus, he said, your arguments are like, he said he was complimenting his, his language and how he wrote and how articulate and his vocabulary. He says, your arguments are like a beautiful silver platter being served in the, by the finest servant, but full of dung. That's what he said. He said his arguments were like being delivered a plate of, of just dung on a silver platter, meaning the content of his arguments were nothing. It was terrible. Uh, Luther argues convincingly from Scripture that the fall of Adam plunged the human race into sin. Thus, all men are morally unable to exercise their fallen wills to believe the gospel. It's a work of God and God alone. We've talked about that many times. He wrote the appeal to German nobility in 1520. Luther wrote his work calling on the German nobility to reform the church because the papacy and church councils had failed to do so. He wrote the Babylonian captivity of the church In 1520, he penned this piece attacking the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. The freedom of a Christian. Yet in 1520, again, Luther wrote this work that attacked Rome's view of salvation, maintaining that justification is by faith alone. Of course, the German translation of the Bible. The short catechism. In 1529, Luther penned his short catechism, a series of questions and answers about the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and other critical areas of theology, and Reformation hymns. 
Luther composed some 125 hymns for the church. In 1524, he published the first German hymn book, containing only eight hymns, but subsequent editions added more. Without question, his most famous hymn remains, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we are singing this morning, of course, which he wrote in 1527, the year the Black Plague swept through Germany. He got sick himself, and he was tested in his faith. He writes, he wondered even if his faith would prevail during this trying time. And it did. And at the end, he rested on Psalm 46 and wrote his commentary on Psalm 46 into the hymn version of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Luther wrote his renowned hymn based on Psalm 46. He found strength by contemplating God as a protective stronghold. Real quickly, Luther's theology, divine sovereignty. He held firmly to the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. He writes, He is God, and he, for His will there is no cause or reason that can be laid down as a rule or measure for it, since there is nothing equal or superior to it. But it is itself the rule of all things. For if there were any rule or standard for it, either as cause or reason, it could no longer be the will of God. He wrote about radical depravity. Though his sin, Adam, through his sin, Adam destroyed us and made us enemies of God who are liable to God's wrath and judgment and worthy of eternal death. I feel and confess that I am a sinner on account of the transgression of Adam. Uh, let me skip a couple. Preserving grace. Finally, while explaining 1 John 2.19, Luther affirmed that the perseverance is a mark of those who are truly saved. He says... Quote, the day will reveal those who have been of us and have been born of the gospel of truth and vice versa. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Martin Luther. Martin Luther also, let me say one quick word too about his... You know, I, I listened to several lectures by different men. I watched a one, an hour and a half documentary on the man... I read several pages. I read probably 100 pages on his life. Okay? There are conflicting views on his anti-Semitism. Did he hate the Jews or was he misunderstood? And men are disagreed on that. Uh, One said that he did not hate the Jews. He hated Judaism. There's some quotes that are pretty embarrassing where he basically says that all Jews are going to hell and they're all infected with demons, that kind of stuff. Just vitriolic. But then there's some that says we should share the gospel with the Jews and try to teach them to be better. It's hard to say where his position was, but it's easy to look at his writing and say we would disagree with it. Um, we, we don't believe for a second that because somebody's a Jew, they're automatically destined to heaven. No, we don't agree with that at all. Everybody must come by the way of the cross. But the Bible is pretty clear that that was His chosen people and He has a plan for them in the future. Okay? So that was Martin Luther, and he was the starter of the Reformation. Next week, we're going to talk about his contemporary. The other reformer is a guy from Switzerland named Ulrich Zwingli. And he's an interesting fellow. He's a guy that went to war. He was a preacher that carried a sword by his side. 
So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We thank you for this man's life that we can learn from. We thank you how you used him for the gospel's sake and how we can benefit from his life today for your glory. We pray that as you used Martin Luther, so use us. We pray that all that we do today and in our lives brings you glory. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.